Welcome back to part three and thank you to the Futuro team and Callum for parts one and two where we heard about a new strategic direction and some of the practical ways we can understand the rail marketplace and indeed the broader travel marketplace. However, the risk is that we are ambitious and we have lots of data but that we're solution poor. What I'm going to take us through now are some of today's trends and the underlying behavioural psychology that's underneath them. Hopefully, by understanding these things, we can plot a way into the future where commuter rail makes a useful and driving contribution. I mean, basically, as we've navigated today's changing landscape, um, the point is, as we come up with ideas as to how we want to try and solve all these things, we need to understand what the trends of the day are and how they're having an impact on how people are behaving and uh, what patterns of daily life are. Um, now, those trends don't happen chaotically. Um, underneath it, you've got a layer of kind of behavioural science. And uh, what I thought I'd try and do is just kind of run through some of the trends that are taking place today and some of the behavioural science that's underneath those and then see if that kind of sparks some ideas or thinking about stuff we can actually practically do. <laughs> Oh, God. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you see, that would have been good, but you know, sorry. <laughs> um, so, no, no, no. Um, these guys know all about the seat comfort. We actually went to Italy to, to the seat comfort uh, design studio, so that was quite cool. Um, but yeah, this 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 whole kind of piece of work that we've done uh, at Stranitalia in the UK has been based around working with Color Airways. Um, so Color Airways are sort of recognised as one of the best travel brands in the world for customer experience and the way that they design things is they work out what are the trends that are impacting the world, what's the underlying behavioural science and then how to try and match what you know about people, their behaviours, their biases to try and design a product that's going to appeal to them. We didn't just talk to Color Airways, we also spoke to a whole load of other people so IHG, as you pointed in Liverpool, through to Travel Lodge. So they've got a full range of uh, sort of customer expense and uh, and stars, uh, as well as Lufthansa Group, uh, Tui Group, and uh, Dorchester Collection. So this kind of work comes from a wide uh, range of different sources. Um, what I'm not going to do is to go through every single trend because it just takes far too long. And what you find is they actually get really repetitive. And the reason they get repetitive is quite logical when you think about it, because they're driven by the same underlying sort of human behavioural science. Um, so kind of start with a, with a really easy one that everybody knows. It's a proper kind of buzz, buzz term going around, and that's cross-channel personalisation. So basically, you know, this is really very simple. Everybody expects that they are recognised by the company they're dealing with, whether it's on social media, it's from an online account, whether it's in person, the expectation is that you know it's me and so you can try and personalise the experience to recognise the individual preferences. And that's pretty much at odds with rail when you think about it, where we've got one or two core products which are basically first class and standard class, and you pay your money and you put something there. That's really quite at odds with the trend that we see through personalisation. I know Trinitalia is trying to do lots of work in this field around loyalty and uh, bespoke offers and so on. No, that's really coming to the UK, but that's that's one big trend that we're that we're seeing, and pretty much all the trends that follow are driven by this 
I want it to be about me personalization trends going on. If you take it a step further into augmented reality, the two they are tiny. Um, and if you want, we can go through every single slide in turn, um, or we can just go along with this. <laughs> Um, I was worried I was getting suddenly older. <laughs> well, it, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is huge. I mean, it's massive on the screen. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you need to get glasses as well as me. Um, but I mean, seriously, augmented reality is kind of taking that step further because what augmented reality is doing is it's making it very personalised for the individual. If you take what you know about an individual, it's really easy to hyper-personalise it in, in a virtual world. And that is really changing how certain products are being sold. But I think we expect to see that trend expand into other areas. But at the moment, it's kind of limited. So you know what a you know, what piece of clothing might look like on you, what how a piece of furniture might go into your home. But this kind of augmented reality piece um, really creates a challenge for transport operators because what we're seeing is the separation of experience and place. We spoke, you guys spoke a lot earlier about the sort of separation of work and place. We're seeing this in, in the more kind of business to consumer field and leisure field um, as much as anything else. Um, the other kind of key one I'd, I'd draw people's attention to is flexibility. Uh, and really, again, flexibility has become one of the defining traits of the modern consumer because lockdowns around the world shattered all the kind of rigid social habits that were in place for absolute years and years and years. And, People want to keep those good sides of lockdown. Um, and, you know, it's completely reshaped the way that companies interact with staff, consumers interact with, uh, with, with their employers, with, uh, with people they're buying things off, or absolutely right away across life. So the demand is for really flexible solutions. So things that are personalised as possible and flexible to fit around the kind of personalization thing. And again, that is really pretty different to the way that rail acts with consumers. We're very much, here's a mass market solution, take the lead of where the trend is towards flexibility. Um, one of the other kind of really key things we're seeing is desire for minimalism. So, so that's not necessarily about aesthetics. Um, it's also really about broader consumer choices. If you think about it, life is really complicated and increasingly we're seeing gravitating on simplicity and functionality. Um, really the people opting for products and experiences that are quite minimalist, quite simple, as opposed to being quite aspirational and materialistic as we've seen in kind of recent times. And again, that desire for minimalism, I challenge back onto the industry, is also quite different to the way that we do business. If you look at uh, the array of train fares, for example, certainly not minimalist. Um, so again, so these are kind of four quite key trends that we see going on where rail's going to have to rethink what it does to try and meet on those trends. Um, another one that's kind of interesting is our intelligent digital assistant. So quite how these fit in, um, you can debate, but they are becoming integral to people's lives and they, they're influencing behaviour because they're really, really convenient. Just say, hey Siri, uh, remind me to check on Thursday, I've got the money to my direct debits to go out or whatever it might be. Um, people are becoming really kind of quite reliant upon all of these um, ideas uh, to tell them what to do. So it's that kind of immediate, yep, yeah, I'm just going to say something and it will happen piece. And what that does, it takes, again, it takes away the need for people to, to go to a place to do things. You can just get a very easy reminder from the 
electrical systems and how rail tries to uh, integrate into that piece. I don't really see any work going on in that field whatsoever. I can get Siri to tell me that, to check my bank account for my direct debits. I've got no idea of anything's happening rather than transport involving those sorts of things. Um, two other kind of interesting things in the virtual world, and I get at first glance that can just seem like the internet and apps, but what we actually mean are things like Teams events. Um, so the kind of physical world and the virtual world molding into one pretty seamlessly without anybody thinking about it. So again, we would hope to have some people online on this call because we're filming it, we're not doing it that way. But again, in the past, that experience of, of coming to this conference would have required you to physically be here. That's just not the case anymore. Um, so people are embracing virtual experiences kind of fundamental part of their, their lives. And again, how we in rail try and capitalise on that is quite an interesting one because if you go and you know, move to South Essex, what we then need to make sure is that you are going to go down to the beach rather than do something virtually online. It's a kind of new competitor for us. Uh, and sort of taking that step further, you've got Metaverse. So this is an interesting concept that's a long, long way from being uh, anything that we need to think about immediately. But um, when you've got uh, you know, online gaming platforms, people create games, play them with each other, you know, socialise using avatars, all that type of stuff, these are things that are appealing to kids in particular. So what we have now is a generation that's young that will be becoming consumers in the next 10 years or will be about to become at the end of that 10 years. And they're completely comfortable with this whole kind of metaverse world. And we hear all the tech entrepreneurs preaching about metaverse as a commercial opportunity. So it seems very likely they're going to put the effort in there to make this metaverse become more of a commercial opportunity than it is now. And there's this whole kind of generation that's quite comfortable with it. So quite what that means, we don't know. Um, but again, it's something that uh, will become a trend in the kind of timescales that we're thinking about. And logically, it feels like an alternative way of, you know, socialising with people and having those support networks. So you don't have to go in and have a drink after work if you can just socialise with people in the metaverse. So again, these are sort of things that we, trends that we need to, to kind of think about. Can I ask one question? Yeah, go on. Um, so in terms of thinking about the metaverse, it's something that's obviously far in the future, and then transport being very much at the right back, for the most part, are taking train journeys because they love the train journey, they're doing it to get from A yeah. to B. Do you see that as a, a commercial opportunity, a commercial risk in the future? It's interesting because I think it depends upon how it plays out. It's in, it's in its infancy to such a degree, I don't think anybody really knows. Logically, it feels like it's a risk, um, but whether or not it becomes a risk, I just don't know if people might. You just have no idea how people are going to use it. And social media hasn't stopped people socialising. Um, we don't know. I'm sure there is, but I'm struggling to think of any opportunities from this verse, really, for, for a train company, which is all about physically moving people. Um, I think it's only it can only be a risk from from my view. Um, but then equally, the metaverse seems to change with beans every day. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, I think what's quite interesting is a lot of these trends do feel like they're more risk than opportunity, which is quite interesting. As well. That's the thing, isn't it? Training company and it's so like historic in nature, it's such a historic industry. It's all about physically moving people and just the nature of the world. It's just everything's going more virtual. Um, I guess there won't be really a great uh, business in your virtual friends. Uh, <laughs> but I think you underestimated me. Of course, we, we create C to C in Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, what may happen, for example, is you, you want, as we were talking about before, you, you must have a car anyway. Maybe you won't have anymore because you go to the gym in your metaverse or you know, uh, whatever in your metaverse. And then the one time a week you have to actually do the travel, you take the train and see if you want to own any means of transport your own control. So that's maybe you can have you just live in the metaverse, and suddenly you just come out of it and work. That's my personal touch on that. Two things that we talk about a lot in the NTT in this kind of context are digitally excluded customers and unbanked customers because you don't have bank accounts. And it's really interesting to kind of reflect as the world transitions towards a more casual society and a digital society, how you ensure the kind of organization that we are. We maintain kind of equitable access to people um, if the engagement, and it's a fallacy to sort of say, okay, more people are just going to be around. That's not the case. It's, it's all sorts of demographics. I think the flip side of thinking about these things as risks is to say, well, the kind of people that use the train fit largely into sorts of demographics at the moment versus other modes. As the service becomes more digital, more cashless, there will be people who feel disenfranchised by that. Who are they? What do they want? How can they appeal to that? And that's, that's potentially an opportunity to target demographics and actually traditionally used around. And, and we've seen it as well because we're thinking about the safety of the society as well. Upon all these trends, I think the rail industry is still missing one of fundamental things that is customer centric approach in various inputs. I see. And uh, mm-hmm. I was talking the other day that it's, a, mm-hmm. it's an obligation in the industry, for example, if someone asks for a refund, you don't need to get You have to wait 48 hours to give it back because of uh, problems with systems, because you have to, get, you have to wait for the gates to, 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 to update everything. So they asked me, okay, we should do this. I said, but no, it sucks. I mean, but this is not. With customer proposition, it's not like with customer experience, we should do the opposite. We should give money back immediately. We should work on the other system to make sure that we can give back money. But if you talk to most of the people who will tell you, customer, this is a revenue risk. We have to protect our revenue, so we'll give back money in 48 hours, maybe in 72 hours, so we are even more safe. And uh, it's, it's the wrong way. Look at it, but we should, we should provide a customer experience that is nice and the customer can say that they don't have money to do not the security of value. So I think that's a very fundamental thing that should be added on top of this. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think it's kind of what Jess touched on earlier, and then uh, I think you turned it as a kind of commercial thing. You know, it's the same type of thing that actually needs to attract people in. Um, and you know, these are the trends that are attracting people in elsewhere, and um, we're just not on those trends whatsoever. Um, and I think the sort of fundamental underlying mindset reason for that, uh, which needs addressed. I mean, one of the other kind of things we're seeing as well is real concern around risk. Uh, so people are very concerned about risk for obvious reasons with COVID and, and what they see on the news. And we're seeing that that is really stopping people from making changes. People are sticking with what they know. They perceive what they know to be low risk and something they don't know. And, and that's making change quite difficult. Um, you know, and again, we're in this kind of Dr. Google age as well. So... There's this whole abundance of viewpoints online, I'm sure you may have noticed, and uh, the desire for sort of immediate answers. I'm not going to wait, I want to know now because I'm scared of this risk thing is agitated more than it would have done before. It's pushing people towards immediate answers and self diagnosis. And uh, why would you want to wait for an expert when you can very quickly, easily find out an answer online for free? Uh, and, and that's quite an interesting trend for us. So it does mean, for example, looking at you know, what we have online, for example, uh, it's not necessarily our opinion that folk are looking at. We're looking online for a whole range of opinions, and I think that makes uh, shifting the perception of South Essex all the more difficult because we don't control the narrative as you used to anymore. Um, and again, constantly searching for information and not remembering, like trying to read it off an iPad. Um, now, this is from the abundance of data that we've got. Um, people don't have to try and remember things anymore. If you want to uh, check a phone number, it's in the phone, you can say it in the person's name. If you want some directions, you go into Google Maps and it tells you the directions step by step. You go onto uh, a train planning app that will tell you the different times step by step. So you don't really have to memorize things anymore. Um, and that really kind of is creating a, a sort of goldfish mindset where people forget very quickly so you're having to constantly make information available by lots and lots of different means otherwise people forgot about it as soon as you told them um, so I think the kind of couple of things that are also um, kind of interesting going on as well so digital twins this is not necessarily from a consumer viewpoint this is more from a sort of corporate viewpoint um, so this is basically saying, well, actually, can we take all the different sources that they should understand what's going on? Um, so if you take Singapore, for example, they, Singapore has a digital twin, um, and one of its tasks is to help the planners understand about energy consumption. So it's monitoring energy consumption at the time, it's looking at what else is going on, and it's trying to make links between the two things. Um, so if you're trying to understand what's happening out there after a kind of culture shock, which is what I think we've seen in rail, um, digital Twin is quite a good way of visualising it. Now, these are incredibly complicated bits of uh, IT, I suppose, that um, are massively, massively hard to get right. But they are a trend that is coming up. And you can imagine that once people figure out how to, to actually make these things work, whoever can add a kind of layer of simplicity onto it stands to get quite rich quite quickly with the idea that merge data sources together and kind of see how everything works as one. So again, not not something for today, 
five or ten years' time, if you can improve the user experience or simplify them into more of a software as a service type of setup, this is something you can see progressing ahead. Is that something that some people at GBR team have thought about at all? The digital twin? Yeah. It comes up in your, with your innovation um, life. It came up in my WCP life when we were looking at modeling flow through just the station. Yeah, the customer behavior and um, projects where we put light on something to the concourse. Look at it, so we can see things like uh, how crowded it was for things, how fast people were moving through the station, where they were spending their time, retail outlets were more popular. All that's really quite interesting for design things. What got particularly interesting was where you were using that kind of data to then trigger operational processes. So we, we trialled, for example, um, assessing a percentage um, crowding, so that when the digital has been kind of detected and created on the floor on the concourse, it would send a message to the control team, special control team, and say, right, we need to get more boots on the ground and have the visibility for customers. And prior to that, the, um, the method to decide that you should do that is to build this mezzanine. If you could see people's legs, shoulders, and heads, and it wasn't very busy. If you go and see heads, that's when you need to do it. So you've gone from can I see heads to um, find the percentage that's automatically going to send the controls before I need to do something differently. It's incredibly powerful for design and for operations. So I think, again, these, these are trends that uh, we should start to get ahead around to see how we can use them. Uh, I mean, all of those are trends, as I say, they don't happen chaotically, they're, they're underpinned by uh, science. And I'll just try and pick out a couple of like, key ones as we go through rather than sort of talk for everyone. But what, one of the most important ones to, to get your head around this is the default effect. Um, and the way I would explain that is think of the last time you bought a television. So people have smart televisions now. Um, have you changed the order of the apps on the television? So two people that have, and other people that have. So most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, people are just sticking to, to what's there. The, the other kind of interesting uh, example of this is a bank. So how many people here have changed their main bank account more than twice? So you're more likely to get divorced that you have to change your main bank account. That's that's not a kind of throwaway thing. This is a, an interesting piece of research. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I certainly know people that have been divorced more than have changed their main bank account. Um, so it's, you know, again, it's that default effect. And when we talk about trying to attract people out of London, or trying to attract people that are currently driving, it's a really important thing to, to try and break down way that companies tend to do that is by playing on restraint bias. So restraint bias basically says, well, we kind of overestimate our, our ability to resist temptation. Um, so the classic kind of bank example of this would be something like Chase or one of the challenge banks that have come about and said, right, 50 quid if you sign up now and 50 quid every time you sign someone else up. So that they're getting you in there by because you go, actually, oh, yeah, I, I can get, okay, that, that's not 200 quid, easy. Wait, I'll do that, sign here. And it, and it encourages people to, to sign up. Then what they do is they kind of flip it around 
and say, well, thank you for joining. We're now going to give you 1% cash back on all of your transactions. So that means next time you kind of another challenger bank comes along and says we offer you 50 quid, they say, oh, I'm not going to do that because I'm going to give them back. So the way that restraint bias is played uh, when you're trying to get people in and keep people is quite an interesting example of using that psychology to manipulate um, people. And again, barn effects, this is one of the key kind of things going on now where everybody thinks the stuff is personalised to them when it's not. Um, you know, you can categorise down to such a way that it feels very personalised. And barn effect is what's driving pretty much half the trends we see in the world right now. Um, people just getting the kind of strange perception this is all about them. Uh, of course, it's not it's all about data and uh, Salesforce and other um, amazing things that are out there. Now, this is kind of a good example here of how, how not to do chunking bias. Chunking bias is basically, uh, you know, get people remember things that's put into manageable chunks. So the way we're doing this, this kind of throwaway. And at that point, we had a few technical issues, but uh, after a short fix, you can now hear the end of the presentation. Now, let's introduce social proofing. This is the tendency to follow the actions of others. Think about online reviews, product testimonials, or popularity matrix on social media platforms. Successful companies showcase positive experiences, customer testimonials, and high usage numbers to create a sense of social validation. We are more likely to trust and choose a product or a supplier if other people we trust have embraced it. So why is that? Well, it's because of loss aversion. That's a very powerful force that drives our decisions. We fear losses much more than we value equivalent gains. Companies use this concept in marketing promotions, framing offers as opportunities to avoid missing out on benefits. So think about what we were discussing earlier regarding challenger banks. Challenger banks know that if they offer you 1% cash back forever, it's going to be less encouraging for you to move than to say £50 now. Loss aversion means we are fearful of making that move, but hyperbolic discounting, our inclination to take immediate rewards ahead of delayed gratification, allows that loss aversion to be countered in that example. So we value instant benefits more than future rewards. Companies tap into this by introducing time-sensitive promotions or discounts, playing into our desire for instant gratification. Limited time offers capitalize on an impulsive nature and drive immediate action. The aesthetic usability effect emphasizes our preference for aesthetically pleasing designs. Think about the sleek design of Apple products or the minimalist layout of Google's homepage. Companies understand that visually appealing designs enhance the perceived usability and desirability of their products. It's not just about functionality, it's also about the wider experience, including the visual experience. The von Rostov effect is another element of the visual experience. Von Rostov effect, or the isolation effect, tells us that distinctive items are more likely to be remembered. In the realm of marketing, companies make their products stand out by incorporating distinctive features. So, consider Apple's iconic white earbuds or Coca-Cola's distinctive red can. These features make the products memorable and distinguishable. 
The endowment effect suggests that people assign higher value to items simply because they own them. Companies leverage this by offering exclusive perks, loyalty programs, or personalized experience to existing customers. Loyalty programs in particular create a sense of ownership and attachment to a brand, making customers more likely to stick around. However, if you're trying to get people to switch from, say, the car, because of the endowment effect, the car is going to seem more attractive than it practically is. People will accept delays and costs of parking because it's their car and they assign a higher value to the ownership of that car than simply the practicalities of it. Choice-supported bias influences our tendency to remember our choices as better than they maybe were. Companies ensure that the overall customer experience is positive, providing excellent service, resolving issues promptly, and creating positive associations with their brand. This positive bias influences our retrospective judgment, fostering a more favorable view of the brand. Confirmation bias reminds us that individuals tend to favor information that confirms their pre-existing beliefs. Political campaigns often employ confirmation bias by emphasizing messages that already resonate with people they wish to get the support of. We face a risk of being insight rich, but idea poor. Insight can tell us what needs changing, but not how to fix it. That's when we need to understand people's biases and the trends consumers like to design actual solutions. So at Trenitalia UK, we've developed a toolkit to help. Keeping it really simple, you can either start with a problem, work out who it impacts, then their biases and trends that those people are buying into elsewhere in life, or you can start with a group, find out what problems they have with our service, and then look at their biases and trends that they buy into to try and design solutions. Right, that's more than enough for me. Thank you.